Chapter Seven, Part One of the Ordeal of Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. Chapter Seven The Playboy in Letters. Part One. Quote, how can great minds be produced in a country where the test of a great mind is agreeing in the opinions of small minds john stuart mill we have now watched the gradual building up and the final flowering in mark twain of the personality which his mother his wife all america indeed had so to speak wished upon him it came into existence we recall that personality through his mother's ruthless opposition to the poet in him through the shock of his father's death and every influence he had encountered in life had confirmed him in the pursuit of opulent respectability we have seen however that this was not the real mark twain this money-making success-loving wire-pulling philistine it was a sort of dissociated self the race character which had risen in him with the stoppage of his true individuality the real mark twain had been arrested in his development the artist had remained rudimentary and this is the mark twain we have to consider now what a child he was says mr paine always to the very end it was this childishness which caused and which explains his lack of spiritual independence as a man and which accounts for the character of his work as a writer what a child he was glance in the first place at that famous temperament of his perhaps the best impression we have of it is one written by his friend joseph twitchell in a letter from switzerland where they were tramping together in eighteen seventy eight mark twain was forty-three at the time mark is a queer fellow says twitchell there is nothing that he so delights in as a swift strong stream you can hardly get him to leave one when once he is within the influence of its fascinations to throw in stones and sticks seems to afford him rapture to-night as we were on our way back to the hotel seeing a lot of driftwood by the torrent side below the path i climbed down and threw it in when i got back to the path mark was running downstream after it as hard as he could go throwing up his hands and shouting in the wildest ecstasy and when a piece went over a fall and emerged to view in the foam below he would jump up and down and yell he said afterward that he hadn't been so excited in three months he acted just like a boy and observe what he said of himself in 
the turning point of my life by temperament i was the kind of person that does things does them and reflects afterward so i started for the amazon without reflecting and without asking any questions that was more than fifty years ago in all that time my temperament has not changed by even a shade i have been punished many and many a time and bitterly for doing things and reflecting afterward but these tortures have been of no value to me i still do the thing commanded by circumstance and temperament and reflect afterward one could hardly ask for a more perfect definition of immaturity then there was his boyish passion for make-believe his inclination for gorgeous trappings and medieval splendor what mr paine calls the fullness of his love for theatrical effect we know how he enjoyed dressing up for the children's charades how he reveled in the costumes of the prince and the pauper his lifelong delight in showing off had the same origin mr paine tells how in washington once when they were staying at the willard hotel supposing that clemens would like to go down to dinner with as little ostentation as possible he took him by an elevator that entered the dining-room directly and without stopping at the long corridor known as peacock alley when they reached the dining-room however clemens inquired isn't there another entrance to this place and hearing that there was a very conspicuous one he added let's go back and try it over so says mr paine we went back up the elevator walked to the other end of the hotel and came down to the f street entrance there is a fine stately flight of steps a really royal stair leading from this entrance down into peacock alley to slowly descend that flight is an impressive thing to do it is like descending the steps of a throne room or to some royal landing place where cleopatra's barge might lie i confess that i was somewhat nervous at the awfulness of the occasion but i reflected that i was powerfully protected so side by side both in full dress white ties white silk waistcoats and all we came down that regal flight of course he was seized upon at once by a lot of feminine admirers and the passage along the corridor was a perpetual gauntlet i realize now that this gave the dramatic finish to his day and furnished him with proper appetite for dinner all the actors in the world may protest that they would do the same thing the motive is none the less for that an adolescent one when mark twain marveled at the court costumes of the indian princes at oxford when he said he had been particularly anxious to see the oxford pageant in order to get ideas for his funeral procession which he was planning on a large scale 
when he remarked if i had been an ancient briton i would not have contented myself with blue paint but i would have bankrupted the rainbow was he not at sixty at seventy just or rather still tom sawyer then there was his sense of proportion or rather his lack of any sense of proportion his rudimentary judgment i shall say nothing here of his truly dazzling display of this in matters of business but did not mark twain who was supposed to understand his own countrymen foretell that within a generation after his death america would be a monarchy a literal monarchy not merely a citadel of economic reaction did he not affirm with all conviction that the christian scientists would so increase and multiply that in forty years they would dominate our political life there are certainly at this time western cities where that has occurred but mark twain the hardy prophet seems never to have glimpsed the nascent forces into whose control the political and economic future seems really bound to pass in all the years of his traveling to and fro through europe he divined hardly one of the social tendencies that had so spectacular a denouement within four years of his death in austria where he spent so much time at the turning of the century he was dazzled by the pomp of the assassinated empress's funeral this murder he writes with the fatuity of a schoolboy will still be talked of and described and painted a thousand years from now but what did he make of that memorable clash he witnessed in the reichsrath between the czech and the german deputies all history was involved in that as any one can see now as a discerning man might almost have seen then in mark twain's stirring times in austria it is scarcely anything but a meaningless brawl he does not make comic copy of it he reports it with all gravity but he understands nothing of it indeed he freely says so it was this same childish incuriosity regarding the nature and causes of the human drama this same rudimentary cultural sense that led him always instinctively to think of history for instance just as boys of ten used to think of it as a succession of kings that led him into that reckless use of superlatives wherever his interest happened to be engaged he assured mr paine that the news of somebody's discovery of the baconian authorship of shakespeare's plays would reach him by cable wherever he was that the world would quake with it and he said without any qualification whatever that the premature end of the russian japanese war was entitled to rank as the most conspicuous disaster in political history and quite on a par with his reckless juvenility of judgment 
was mark twain's level of reflection the jottings from his notebooks that mr paine has published consist mainly of mere childlike observations of sheer fact or expressions of personal animus his remarks on social political and economic subjects are precisely of the sort one would expect from what is called the average man communism is idiocy for example they want to divide up the property suppose they did it it requires brains to keep money as well as to make it in a precious little while the money would be back in the former owner's hands and the communist would be poor again the division would have to be remade every three years or it would do the communist no good is that the sort of exploded platitude one looks for from a famous man of letters imagine a french or an english writer of rank even of the most conservative color committing to paper an opinion so utterly unphilosophical one would say that mark twain had never thought at all and then most significant of all there was his undeveloped aesthetic sense mark twain says his biographer was never artistic in the common acceptance of that term neither his art nor his tastes were of an artistic kind but such distinctions lose their meaning an inch below the surface everyone is artistic mark twain like the majority of people was merely rudimentarily so his humorous acknowledgment of this fact is of course well known all the world remembers how he said that in bayreuth he felt like a heretic in heaven well he adds in the shrine of saint wagner i ought to have recognized the sign the old sure sign that has never failed me in matters of art whenever i enjoy anything in art it means that it is mighty poor the private knowledge of this fact has saved me from going to pieces with enthusiasm in front of many and many a chromo what did he like in painting landseer and the way he makes animals absolute flesh and blood insomuch that if the room were darkened ever so little and a motionless living animal placed beside a painted one no man could tell which was which in music the jubilee singers away back in the beginning to my mind their music made all other vocal music cheap and that early notion is emphasized now it moves me infinitely more than any other music can i think that in the jubilees and their songs america has produced the perfectest flower of the ages in poetry kipling i guess he's just about my level in earlier years we are told an ancient favorite called the burial of moses became for him a sort of literary touchstone and this general order of taste remained his to the end
there was a moment when he read browning a rage that mr paine finds unaccountable though we can perhaps attribute it to the fun he had in puzzling it all out he had a lifelong passion for omar khayyam but that was half a matter of rhythm and half a matter of doctrine he had a sanguinary encounter with flaubert's salambo which he didn't like any of it otherwise his chosen reading was wholly non-aesthetic he detested novels in particular i never could stand meredith and most of the other celebrities he said inclusively he called warfield's the music master as permanent as jefferson's rip van winkle as for that matter it was indeed he seems to have taken a general passive pleasure in all the popular plays and stories of all the seasons the positive note in his taste then was the delight in sonorous sound with haunting suggestions of mossy marble and thanatopsianism in short that sense of swinging rhythm which is the most primitive form of aesthetic emotion combined with just those tints of sentiment by turns mortuary and supermasculine which are characteristic of an anglo-saxon adolescence now all these traits of an arrested development correspond with the mental processes we find at work in mark twain's literary life in his lack of pride of sustained interest in his work of artistic self-determination and self-control in his laziness and loose extravagance one finds all the signs of the impatient novice who becomes gradually the unwilling novice without ever growing up to the art of letters at all finally as we shall see the books he wrote with love the books in which he really expressed himself and achieved a measure of greatness were books of and chiefly for children books in which his own juvenility freely registered itself papa has done a great deal in his life that is good and very remarkable wrote little susie clemens when she was fourteen years old but i think if he had had the advantages with which he could have developed the gifts which he has made no use of in writing his books he could have done more than he has and a great deal more even i should like to point out that there is more discernment in the fragmentary notes of this little girl than in anything else that has been published about mark twain susie clemens was a born psychologist she was always troubled about her father she seems indeed to have been the only one of his family his associates to conjecture in her dim childish way that his spirit was at odds with itself that a worm perhaps for she could never have said what or why lay at the root of that abounding temperament when she set down this note her father was in the full glory of his mid-career 
wealth and fame were rolling in upon him and tides of praise from all the world he was on a pinnacle of happiness indulging to the full that reckless prodigality spiritual and material in which he found his chief delight mr howells twitchell those who watched over him fell like so many children themselves into that mood of a spendthrift adolescence was his house always full of carpenters and decorators adapting it to some wider scheme of splendid living was there no limit to that lavish hospitality was his life constantly broken by business activities by trips to canada by the hundred and one demands that are laid upon an energetic man of affairs not one of his friends seems ever to have guessed that he was missing his destiny some years ago mr howells reprinted the long series of his reviews of mark twain's books admirable comments as they often are from a literary point of view there is not the slightest indication in them of any sense of the story of a human soul his little daughter alone seems to have divined that story and she was troubled something told her what these full-grown men of letters and religion never guessed that this extravagant playboy was squandering not his possessions but himself scattering to the winds the resources nature had committed to him and she alone knew perhaps that somehow sometime he would have to pay for it indeed for it is not yet the time to deal with consequences was there ever anything like the loose prodigality of mark twain's mind his mental niagara says mr paine was always pouring away it was and without any sort of discrimination any sort of control he tossed off as the small change of anecdote thousands of stories any dozen of which would have made the fortune of another popular writer stories fell from his hand like cards strewn upon the ground we have seen how innumerable were the side activities into which he poured the energy he was unable to use in his writing in his writing alone his energy was superabundant to such a degree that he never really knew what he was doing his energy was the master and he was merely the scribe unused half-used misused was ever anything like that energy mr paine tells of his piling up hundreds of manuscript pages only because his brain was thronging as with a myriad of fireflies a swarm of darting flashing ideas demanding release he was always throwing himself away upon some trifle stumbling over himself as it were because the end he had actually focused was so absurdly inadequate to the means he couldn't help lavishing upon it there was 
a double-barreled detective story for instance it suggests an elephant trying to play with a pea what is the story after all but a sort of gigantic burlesque on sherlock holmes that is the obscure intention unless i am mistaken mark twain wants to show you how simple it is to turn these little tricks of the storyteller's trade and what is the final result a total defeat sherlock holmes emerges from the contest as securely the victor as a living gnat perched upon the nose of a dead lion and then there were those vast quantities of letters twenty thirty forty pages long which he is said to have written to mr howells i am writing to you he remarks in one that has been published not because i have anything to say but because you don't have to answer and i need something to do this afternoon mark twain's letters are not good letters just because of this lack of economy his mind does not play over things with that instinctive check and balance that makes good gossip it merely opens the sluice and lets nature tumble through in all its meaningless abundance that was mark twain's way think of the plans he conceived and never carried out even the fraction of them that we have record of the multitude of discarded manuscripts mr Payne mentions now and then three bulky manuscripts about satan a diary of shem in noah's ark three thousand years among the microbes a burlesque manual of etiquette a story about life in the interior of an iceberg hell-fire hotchkiss huck finn and tom sawyer among the indians another book about huck and tom half written in eighteen ninety seven a third book begun after his return to missouri in nineteen o two a ghastly tale about an undertaker's love affair which did not pass the family censor somehow he could never tell the difference the story of a dubious miraculous conception in arkansas the autobiography of a damn fool the mysterious chamber the one hundred and second arabian night in which scheherazade was finally to talk the sultan to death how many others were there it was always hit or miss with mark twain that large loose ignorant way he had of talking in later years so meticulous in his statistics so exceedingly fallible in his social intuitions how like so many other elderly americans of our day who have lived lives of authority was it not characteristic of his whole career that vast flow that vast fog of promiscuous talk was it garrulous was it not rather phosphorescent swarming with glinting fragments of an undeveloped genius like space itself with all the stars of space 
following some dim orbit perhaps but beyond the certain consciousness outside the feeblest control of any mortal mind an undeveloped genius an undeveloped artistic faculty could there be a surer sign of it than this lack of inner control what we observe in all this prodigal and chaotic display of energy is the natural phenomenon who has not acquired the characteristics of the artist at all those two supreme characteristics especially upon which rodin so insisted in his writings patience and conscience characteristics which puritanism has monopolized for the moral life but which are of the essence of all art patience conscience economy self-knowledge all those humble traits of the wise and sober workingman which every mature artist is where shall we look for them in mark twain's record i don't know that i can write a play that will play he says in a letter from vienna in eighteen ninety eight but no matter i'll write half a dozen that won't anyway dear me i didn't know there was such fun in it i'll write twenty that won't play this fumbling frantic child of sixty-three has forgotten that years before he had been convinced and with every reason that write a play he could not and hear him again i have begun twenty magazine articles and books and flung every one of them aside in turn is this a young apprentice impatiently trying out the different aspects of a talent about which he is still in the dark no it is a veteran of letters who has been writing books for thirty years and who far from attempting new and difficult experiments in his craft lacks nothing but the perseverance to carry out some trivial undertaking on an old and well-tried pattern it is true that on this occasion his debts had interfered and taken the spirit out of his work nevertheless those months in vienna whose tale he tells were almost typical of his life he appears habitually to have had five or six books going at once which he found it almost impossible to finish there were always swarms of beginnings but his impulse seldom carried him through this was true even of the writing of those books in which as one might suppose he was most happily expressing himself he groaned over life on the mississippi and only drove himself on in order to fulfill an absurd contract that mark twain the writer had made with mark twain the publisher and strangest of all as it would seem if we did not know how little his wife approved of the book there was huckleberry finn this man who had experienced a consuming interest and delight in the composition of a play which mr paine calls a dreary absurd impossible performance 
no doubt because he had been able to write the whole of it three hundred pages in forty-two hours by the clock only by a sort of chance it appears finished his one masterpiece at all he wrote it fitfully during a period of eight years his interest waxing and waning but never holding out till at last he succeeded in pushing it into the home stretch indeed he seems to have been all but incapable of absorption the most engrossing idea he ever had was probably that of the connecticut yankee a book at least more ambitious than any other he attempted but even the demoniac possession of that for it was demoniac suffered a swift interruption hardly was he immersed in it when he rushed out again in a sudden sally it was in defense of general grant's english style and the red rag this time was the grammatical peccability of matthew arnold in all this capricious distracted uncertain spasmodic effort we observe the desperate amateur driven back again and again by a sudden desire by necessity by a hundred impulsions to a task which he cannot master which fascinates him and yet to speak paradoxically fails to interest him nothing is more significant than this total lack of sustained interest in his work his lack of interest in literature itself for that matter in all his books in all the endless pages of his life and letters there is scarcely a hint of any concern with the technique or indeed with any other aspect of what was nothing else surely than his art i have just noted the general character of his aesthetic taste he was well satisfied with it he was undisturbed by aesthetic curiosity he said he detested novels in general he seems to have read none but those of mr howells his father confessor in literature he told more than once how at a london dinner-table mrs clemens had been tortured to have to admit to stepniak that he had never read balzac thackeray and the others he said that his brother had tried to get him to read dickens and that although he was ashamed he could not do it he had read only and that several times a tale of two cities because we may assume its theme is the french revolution in which he had an abiding interest an animal repugnance to jane austen an irritated schoolboy's dislike of scott and cooper is not that the measure of the literary criticism he has left us but here again there is a positive note his lifelong preoccupation with grammar how many essays and speeches introductions and extravaganzas by mark twain turn upon some question 
whose interest is purely or mainly verbal english as she is taught a simplified alphabet the awful german language a majestic literary fossil fenimore cooper's literary offenses italian with grammar william dean howells general grant and matthew arnold the new guide of the conversation in portuguese and english it is the letter perfection of mr howells that dazzles him the want of it he considers a sufficient reason for saying you're another to matthew arnold and tripping him up over some imaginary verbal gaucherie he is indignant with cooper for calling women females indignation was mark twain's habitual attitude toward the modes of the past and foreign languages never ceased to be infinitely ludicrous to him just because they weren't english these are all signs of the young schoolboy who has begun to take a pride in his first compositions and who has become suddenly aware of words and i suggest that mark twain never reached the point of being more at home in the language of civilization than that his preoccupation with letter perfection is thrown into a significant light by the style of huckleberry finn if the beauty and the greatness of that book spring from the joyous freedom of the author is it not because in throwing off the bonds of the bourgeois society whose mould he had been obliged to take he was reverting not only to a frame of mind he had essentially never outgrown but to a native idiom as well mark twain has told us again and again that in all vital matters a man is the product of his training if we wanted further proof that his taste was simply rudimentary we might observe that it developed in some slight measure though very slightly and inconclusively the training having come too late mr Payne tells us for example that twelve years after the pilgrimage of the innocents abroad he found the new bright copies of the old masters no longer an improvement on the originals although he still did not care for the originals indeed if we wish to understand the reason for the barbarous contempt he displays obtrusively in his earlier work for the historic memorials of the human spirit in europe we have only to turn to the postscript of the innocence abroad itself we were at home in palestine says mark twain it was easy to see that that was the grand feature of the expedition we had cared nothing much about europe we galloped through the louvre the piti the uffizi the vatican all the galleries we examined modern and ancient statuary with a critical eye in florence rome or anywhere we found it and praised it if we saw fit and if we didn't 
we said we preferred the wooden indians in front of the cigar stores of america but the holy land brought out all our enthusiasm we fell into raptures by the barren shores of galilee we pondered at tabor and at nazareth yes the pilgrimage part of the excursion was its pet feature there is no question about that why why were paris and rome nothing to mark twain but the material for an indifferent a hostile persiflage while jerusalem was full of poetry sublimity and more than all dignity it was because the only education he had known was that hebraic education which led matthew arnold to say that the american people of his time were simply the english middle class transplanted to fear god and dread the sunday school he wrote to mr howells once exactly described that old feeling which i used to have but had he ever outgrown this fear and dread had not his wife and all those other narrow puritanical influences to which he had subjected himself simply taken the place of the sunday school in his mind tom sawyer abroad which he wrote quite late in life is an old-fashioned western country sunday school scholars romantic dream of the land of egypt tom sawyer's abroad doesn't include europe at all and we have seen that mark twain's general attitude as a european tourist remained always that of the uninitiated american business man his attention had been fixed in his childhood upon the civilization of the biblical lands and that is why they seemed to him so full of poetry and dignity his attention had never been fixed upon the civilization of europe and that is why it seemed to him so empty and absurd faced with these cultural phenomena he reverted all his life to the attitude which had been established in him in his boyhood and had been confirmed by all the forces that had arrested his development beyond that stage End of chapter 7, part 1 Recording by Lucretia B.